Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. Thanks to everyone who inquired about the upcoming course, The Mythic Body. We had a tremendous response, and the course is now full. I'm trying to keep it manageable and at a good size so that we can really explore things together in an intimate way and that there can be a good amount of personal attention that comes with the course. So I'm really excited for the course, and I will be offering it next year. And I'll be sure to update everyone on how the plans for next year's course are coming, and stay tuned. And in the meantime, if you're interested in more of this mythic study, I offer a twice-monthly study group that's going to be ongoing. It's for podcast patrons, and patronage levels start as low as $6 a month. So for $6 a month, you get access to two two-hour study groups per month where we can go into these mythic topics in a lot more detail and a lot more depth and discuss the mythic with other members of the community And it's been a really rich way to explore this mythic content together. So if you're interested in that, go to patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the Emerald Podcast. And sign up for any level of patronage and you'll have access to the ongoing mythic study group. Sophie Strand describes herself as a writer, an animist troubadour, and a giant pile of composting leaves. Her lyrical, ecocentric vision of the mythic has gained her a lot of fans, including me. As someone myself who is always seeking to bring the mythic into the tangible, to help myths regain their body, to place myths in an ecosystem, and to explore the somatic dimensions of the mythic, I was thrilled to discover Sophie's work. The titles of her posts and essays are compelling. They drew me in. Titles like My Saint is a Weed, Storm Gods are Spore Gods, and Becoming a Ruin. And if the titles drew me in, so did the evocative writing that can transform a casual encounter with an oak stump into something like this. Quote, Mist-polished oak stumps, wet, yellow, freshly beheaded, inspire me to press my own chest, the place in me that has also been cut down to its pelvic resin. But give it a year, two years, three or four, and the resurrection will not be a shifted stone or empty tomb. No, look for a forest of tuning forks, V's of trees risen in the joined music of strained wind, all erupted from one trunk, polyphonies of leaf and bark and branch, each contrapuntal thread sprouted from the sore spot I thought was surely dead. Ah, cut me down to double this desire. Call forth from my bare trunk the triplicity of all I can be. I see it now, with the oak's exploded self. There are many of me growing towards many of you. So the very place that is cut down regrows to become 
a forest of tuning forks. The oak's exploded self is a journey that encapsulates the mythic embodied journey, sacrifice and resurrection so central to each of our journeys, so central to the mythic, but resurrection not into an abstract principle, a vegetal resurrection, a resurrection into V's of trees that hum in the wind and find a multiplicity of being out of what was once singular. In Confessions of a Compost Heap, Sophie writes, quote, If I feel myself, like the compost heap, beginning to melt, it means that I am also melting into another story, a bigger story, a wider cast of characters. Let me dance between ripe and rot. I don't know what act in the play comes next, but I know what my prayer is. Make me bigger than an eye. Make me good soil. Make me bigger than an eye. Make me good soil. Right at the heart of the mythic is an invocation, a grappling with what it means to be in a body, in a world of bodies, that will crumble and are crumbling and sprouting other bodies a process that is much larger than I. And so embodiment is not just a journey to sit comfortably in the I that we know as I, to experience this world through a self that we've become comfortable with or whose externals we've neatly defined, but to melt like a compost heap, to be cut down like an oak stump and regrow into a forest of tuning forks, to become, as she writes, a ruin. The stories that pervade global myth of plants sprouting from bodies, of flowering wands and lightning gods, are revisited with fresh eyes, as Sophie explores the biological processes of nature and how they are reflected in and invoked by the stories that we often take for granted. Jesus becomes yeast. Storm gods are tangible sporular processes instead of detached sky fathers. Linear interpretations are shed in favor of a vision that is multiplicitous, that is, one could say, mycelial. Sophie asks us, does your prayer have roots? Does your story have fur? Does your metaphor have an ecosystem? Is your philosophy edible? What does your God smell like? Today on the podcast, Becoming a Ruin Decomposing and Regrowing the Mythic with Sophie Strand, this time on The Emerald. I guess right at the beginning, I'd be interested to know your journey into the mythic and and how it started and what what led you into the mythic space. I think I grew up as as the child of spiritual scholars and storytellers. Um, So people who are really interested in writing and fairy tales and spirituality and kind of the intersection between all of these different modes of meaning making. So I think that's kind of this the water I was swimming in as a child. Um, You know, I had Narnia and Tolkien and Harry Potter read to me alongside Tibetan Book of the Dying and Ovid and, and heard all these stories. And so I think that was, those were the materials that were given to me. The mythic materials were my playthings as a child. But 
I think that they have grown roots inside of me as a writer and as a thinker because of I've experienced some intense physical disability. I have a connective tissue disease that's genetic, and it's been a very tricky road navigating that. And I think that one thing that became very clear as I navigated that was that stories and myths were helpful navigation tools. And they didn't always last. You know, I think there were moments where the story would end or a certain myth would stop working for me. But they've, they've definitely been fertile companions on that very personal journey. You know, one of the things, one of the reasons I really wanted to speak with you is, is there's such a strong sense in your work and your writing of myth within a somatic context and an ecological context and really a felt context. I really connect with your work, actually, because you approach it from this very embodied, very present way. And I think for me, myth is about having a body, about navigating the dissonance between this kind of imaginal dream world that arrives through a very carnal embodied experience. Um, it's about drawing that that root between those two sometimes very paradoxical experiences. Absolutely. I, I said something in one of the episodes once, is there a story that isn't ultimately the story of what it is to be in a body? Exactly. Yeah. And I, I actually think that one of the issues that has happened in the past 2000 years, which is, you know, kind of a blip, actually, mythologically, is that a lot of our myths and stories have been deracinated, that they've been taken out of their bodily context, out of their ecological context, out of their political and social context, and they stop being nourishing or useful for people in bodies and people in ecosystems. You know, I think that's one of, like you're saying, that's one of the huge problems that we face with myth today is that uh, myth has been taken from context. And in the context of, you know, postmodern, post-structuralist, literate society, a myth becomes just an abstract concept and an idea and it loses its body. I mean, you see it, it becomes an object. It becomes mm. something that you can sell. <laughs> and also, you know, when you make something sellable, you have to make it universally applicable. And that's how capitalism works, I think, is that it, it pretends like you can take a food, take it out of its um, environment, and then feed it to everybody, and it's going to affect everybody the same way. Right. I've thought of that in relation to, and I think this relates to how you talk about eco, but I, I've thought of that in relation to the Greek myths, which are so specific in terms of, I'm not only the like local cult deities that they were invoking, but also very specific plants, you yes. know, and what you, what you tend to find in modern interpretations is that the scholar will talk about the plant as kind of just like, oh, well, that's a nice poetic thing to have there, the laurel plant, right? And forgetting that there's an entire context for that particular plant. Yeah. I really appreciated that aspect of your episode on vegetation gods, that you were really, really careful to draw that connection between these gods and the specific plants they're associated with. Yeah, and that, you know, specificity is so important in our world. When I first encountered Sophie's work, I was immediately fascinated by her model of looking at stories through the triple lens of myco, eco, mytho. Myco, yes, as in mushrooms, as in mycelial. And if you're not understanding what I mean by mycelial, check out the documentary Fantastic Fungi. Mycelial 
looks at story beyond linear narratives and singular morals through a lens of multiplicity, through understanding interstitial spaces. Through the mycelial vision, Orpheus becomes not just a single voice but a multiplicity of voices, a root system of song and rapture that spreads across the ancient world, spreads through you and me as we raise our own voices in song. Quote, You didn't pray to Orpheus, you prayed as Orpheus, through lyric and poetry and ecstatic worship of the natural world. Thinking with mycelium, we see Orpheus intimately looping with the landscape. Orpheus's dismemberment by Mayanads is an echo of the Egyptian god Osiris's dismemberment, the death of Attis, and the gruesome demise of Dionysus Zagreus. Each of these dying and resurrecting gods fruits up from a similar underground mycorrhizal system that produces gods associated with vegetation, the underworld, music, poetry, love, and springtime. Here she describes the myco-vision of myth. From where does the story sprout? What specific land did it grow from? What ecology is it seeking to tend to, respond to, root into? How does the story tell me to greater intimacy with the kin outside my door? When I tell stories, read stories, analyze stories, I am guided by three tenets. Myco, eco, and mytho. Myco invokes fungal intelligence cognition and aliveness as a non-solitary experience. Nothing exists in a vacuum. We are understanding more and more that symbiosis is the dominant theme in biology. We mutually constitute each other. Fungi seem to me to best represent the importance of mutualism as they cycle nutrients, blend with algae to create mineral munching lichen, sow forests together, generate soil, and collaborate with the diversity of species. The micro-perspective reminds me that stories live interstitially. They happen between people and beings and events. How do my stories center relationships over individuals? How do my stories happen in conversation with other people? How can I understand that storytelling isn't a monologue, it's consanguinity, a flowing into another being's experience? How can I approach every person, animal, fungi, and plant with a keen eye for the complex system they are flowering from and into? Even as human beings, human artists, and writers, and thinkers, we must trouble our ideas of individuality. We are walking matryoshka dolls, nested swarms of being, skin-silhouetted towers of Babel. You know, I love the mycelial imagery that pervades your work. And not just imagery, but the invoking of the network and um, interstitial spaces. And this line, the myco perspective, reminds me that stories live interstitially. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and how you see this interstitial nature of stories. Yeah, I think one of the issues with monotheism is the idea of the monologue is that anything is one thing talking. When the truth is that we are all mutually constituted, our breath is bringing in our microbiome, fungi, spores, minerals, information about changing weather patterns. And as we breathe out, we are breathing out ourselves, our carbon that will infuse the world around us. Everything is a participatory looping experience and intimacy. So to pretend like any kind of story is an individual event, it creates 
a sterile fiction that doesn't map onto the very entangled, wild, um, chaotic experience of actually being alive in a body in relationship with other bodies and other matter. And I think one really interesting thinker is Karen Armstrong, the historian and religious scholar, has written about how scripture and storytelling was for many thousands of years participatory, collaborative, and um, always adapting. And something I'm actually pretty well versed in, given the work that I've done and the, the writing I've done, is the tradition of oral targums and mishnas, and how in Judaism, in the Second Temple period, it was all oral, and it was all collaborative. It was about a conversation with someone else, about how, how well are you able to talk with another person about this? How does the scripture live between you as a shared vein of thinking? And I think that mycelium are a really good biological demonstration of this, which is they're non-hierarchical. They have cognitive energy, but you can't locate where their brain is. You also can't locate where they begin and end, because if they're slipping into a rootlet and, and connecting a plant and a tree, where is, where is the being of the mycelium? Is it in the plant? Is it in the hyphae that are, that are connecting cell by cell by cell? I mean, one of my favorite facts is that the nuclei and the mitochondria actually go through the cells. They don't live in a single cell. They travel through the hyphae. So it's very hard to locate where the being is, where the mind is. It's the relationship that counts, the connectivity. Yeah, that's interesting, the relationship that counts. And it reminds me of that conversation I had with Tyson Yocaporta, where he talks about the networks and the kinship models and how the kinship is in the spaces in between and changes our, the, our perspective on, say, like the importance of one opinion or one viewpoint in favor of a much more collective opinion. And it's yeah. also interesting, like, you know, you mentioned the, the monotheisms. It's interesting because, I mean, as you've written about, the monotheisms, if you dig a little deeper, aren't even monotheistic. No, they're not. And I mean, I think that's why I really liked um, looking at Jesus as a fungal god, looking at him as a polytheistic swarm of spores and yeast cells hiding behind this fiction of the one loaf of bread. Mm. Um, or thinking also, you know, so you have that connectivity and that looping activity within the forest, but you also have it between the sky sky gods and the earth and the underworld gods through spores have these underground mycorrhizal systems that are really the body of the fungi and then mushrooms which are the fruiting bodies above the ground are really just reproductive events that sporulate and most of those spores go up into the air there are 50 million tons of spores in the sky mushrooms will give off millions of spores a day and these spores create rain clouds so if you think about monotheistic gods as being sky gods, as originally being storm gods, you know, the hand of God that Elijah sees above the ocean, which is like the rain god. If you think of sky, monotheistic sky gods as being storm gods, they're spore gods. So if you look behind the monotheistic Yahweh, you see a glittering swarm of spores. <laughs> yeah, and then later, like you wrote about in the, in the Saints post, you see thousands upon thousands of animate saints that are intimately tied to local ecosystems. Trinity is folkloric animism in Europe until pretty much Protestantism and the iconoclasm of that moment. When they go into the churches and they rip down all of the statues and pictures of saints and they kill people who are still <laughs> celebrating the cult of saints. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really interesting thing because we have kind of this notion as the Protestant revolution is like taking on the corruption in the Catholic church. And there was obviously an aspect that was 
about that, but so much of it was about rooting out the worship of Mary and rooting out the worship of the saints and really rooting out the exact animism that you're talking about. Yeah, it's a very tricky moment. And I think if you look at these heroes of Protestantism and if you look at Luther, you know, they were also really into killing women. <laughs> I mean, there were there were people who were into killing women on both sides of that paradigm. But yeah, you know, it doesn't disappear. It reminded me when you're speaking about the, the spores and the, the monotheistic storm gods, and there's actually a very articulated and now very scientifically proven relationship between lightning and mushroom spores and like you're saying the spores generate the rain and the clouds which is something i didn't know until i read that in in your writing but then they're also finding um you know <laughs> the lightning brings the mushrooms on the ground right yeah the storm the, the rain that falls from the sporulated clouds creates the conditions for more mushrooms to grow too so it's yeah like intense feedback it's great and i guess that i mean to me that's really philosophically interesting in terms of monotheism, because I guess the the tendency is to think of, you know, a monotheistic God as somehow something that is detached or removed from the multiplicity. And when you see that, you know, even the so-called monotheistic God has to be an exchange relationship, that there's really no such thing as like the detached monotheistic object in that way. No. And I mean, that's something I've really charted and that I talk about at length in my book um is the movement from storm gods to sky gods is the movement from a god that is made of matter sandstorm silt spores that constant interchange between underworld ground sky breath body death aliveness to the abstract sky god who never comes down to the ground who never has to participate in the flesh that he supposedly rules and informs and there's such a historical correlation there at times when society was getting increasingly distanced from the earth through agriculture, which led to social stratification, where there actually were people who never came down either, right? And who never touched the earth. And then all of a sudden, it's a vision of a God that never comes down and never touches the earth. Or cities, this idea that you can live in a city and never have to interact with, you know, cities are all about actually shipping the shit out, <laughs> never actually having to deal with the, the cycle of decay. Um, and so that's also, I think of cities also as being this idea that you can create this sterile universe where you never have to deal with the compost heap. Here's a great quote from Sophie on this vision of the detached monotheistic sky god versus the embodied felt god. Quote, how is a monotheistic sky god supposed to rule the dirt, the fungi, the funky, sexy reality of embodied life if he is always hovering above it? How can he understand the millions of different stories that constitute an ecosystem when he insists there is only one story and one God? We are ground people who have been worshipping sky stories not properly suited to our relational existence rooted in specific landscapes. Sporulated storm gods come from the ground like us, so they understand our soil-fed, rain-sweetened existence. They bring the wisdom of the underworld and lift it into the sky only to pour it back into the leaves, the grasses, the valleys, soaking back into the dirt from which they originally emerged. Sky gods encourage linear thinking. Spore gods teach us that everything is cyclical. Yes, sometimes we must ascend like a spore on the wind, but it's also important to descend back into our bodies and back into the earth. 
I mean, to relate it back to the mycology, right? The mycology is the decay, is the compost heap, right? And that that is just as much an aspect of the divine. You know, the monotheisms, the the large-scale agricultural monotheisms wanted to outsource that to the devil, right? So I've been really interested in how the devil is the Dionysus figure and this like many, many layered smeared campaign of Dionysus. <laughs> and I was th- looking at this, this symbol that the devil's always doing in tarot cards and a lot of hermetic imagery. And it's just the Shekinah. It's the, it's the, it's the Jewish divine feminine hand gesture. Um, it's saying, you know, I honor the earth. I honor the feminine principles, the decay, the darkness. Well, and it's interesting too with Dionysus because Dionysus Dionysian practices and Dionysus, um, like you said, suffered a (laughs) massive smear campaign, but then at the same time, were completely absorbed and integrated into the iconography of Jesus. Exactly. Although I think the big difference between Dionysus and Jesus, and this has been something I've really meditated on, is Dionysus completes that virtuous cycle. He goes back into the ground, he gets mulched, he gets, you know, Dionysus Zagreus gets torn apart, as you did wonderfully demonstrated in that episode. Um, and put back into the universe um, to to grow and feed. It's that you know the saprophyte um, mushrooms come up, fungi, and they eat the dead matter and they recycle it and they create the the black soil that is the matter, the matrix, the mother. So Dionysus goes back into the earth that he sprouted from. Jesus ascends out of that cycle. He doesn't go back into the earth to nourish it. There's nothing left behind. So he kind of exits the virtuous cycle of growth and decay. You know, I think that's very interesting because not only does it correlate with like the rise of agriculture and the rise of cities, but it also correlates directly. And these things are all intertwined with the loss of mystical ecstasy in which one actually felt the divine, right? So a storm God is something that one feels, you know, one feels the storm god, one's hairs stand up on the back of the neck when the lightning comes. And, you know, Zeus, for all the (laughs) later shenanigans that he gets associated with, was probably originally an ecstatic cult storm god who, you know, whose adherents danced around in lightning storms and felt the, you know, the ecstatic bristle of the hairs on their neck. And then when you take that, like you're saying, like when you take that totally up to the sky and remove it all together, it's so concurrent, right? It's like the urbanification, the agriculturalization, the layers of social stratification that lead people to be distanced from the earth and distanced from the ecstatic experience of the God, and then to assign the God the place way up in the sky. That's such a good articulation of that. And I I think that actually kind of brings into focus something I've been struggling with, which is that ecstasy is not about leaving your body. It's about that almost agonizing experience of being deeply in your body. Mm-hmm. Of, of rooting down, of feeling that storm, feeling the lightning. It's like the lightning struck tower. It's, you know, you hold up your hand and you, the lightning comes through you and goes right into the ground and you're that channel. So that mm-hmm. ecstasy is a kind of interstitial, interstitial lightning rod experience. Um, but it's not about the ascent. It's not about leaving yourself. It's about really coming into yourself. That's a very deep topic. <laughs> it's very interesting because, I mean, I think to me, it relates to what you wrote about the point being to be a ruin or, you know, I saw in your bio where you wrote like a pile of composting leaves, right? Because I don't know, it's just, it's such an interesting balance within the embodiment world, because I understand 
full well the want that people are having to feel like this very in the body sense. And, you know, out of the body doesn't do it justice. But then I find that like in the body doesn't totally do it justice either, because in the body is also in the interstitial body, right? And in the decomposing body and in the body that knows that the point is to be a ruin ultimately, right? You feel yourself always like a string that's strung between the nodes of life and death and you're vibrating between both both nodes. That, that you know, you're a process. You're not a, a climactic experience. Like you're always halfway to death's door. You know, I always think of Shakespeare like, you know, every comedy, if you played it out two scenes past the comedy would be a tragedy. Every tragedy, if you played it out two scenes past the tragedy is a comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're always slipping into the to a different drama. And I think something that I've been thinking about is, and this goes to what you were saying about the struggle with embodiment and with talking about that, is that to come back into your body after you've been out of it for so long in this kind of Cartesian dualism, this idea that you need to ignore your body's needs in order to show up to work and to progress and do what you're supposed to do is painful. And I don't know, I think something I struggle with is I have extraordinarily intense bodily symptoms that don't have a cure. So coming into my body is both breathtaking and informative and not fun. And I think collectively that is the experience. I mean, to come back into your body is to also look at when your body is part of an ecosystem and the ecosystem is suffering, coming back into your body is coming back into that connective suffering. So what is it? How do we hold that? That's such a big question because I think in the embodiment world, you know, there can be a tendency to maybe focus on the aspects of embodiment that don't necessarily do justice to the multifaceted experience of what embodiment actually is, right? And, and you know, and this has to do again with our trying to position ourselves outside the cycle a little bit, right? And, you know, embodiment equaling comfort or an embodying equaling feeling, you know, pleasantly satisfied or, or something like that. And, and that's not the full spectrum picture of embodiment, right? I think for me, it's always about balance. I think it lasts for a millisecond. You always have to be trying to move towards it. So it's just about that dance. Am I I moving towards some kind of balance? And then I'm moving out of it. Am I moving back towards it? And I just try and be tender with how the narrative has to adapt every day, both in a very physical, somatic way and also cognitively and creatively. Eco, the ecology of a story. What are its roots? In what ecosystem does it live? What was the actual body of a god? How did it function in the community? What was its ritual interaction? How was it felt, translated, understood, experienced, breathed? Eco comes from the Greek word oikos, for household or place to live. Eco reminds me that every story arrives from a specific ecology, a specific assemblage of stones, animals, fungi, and histories. Eco encourages rootedness and curiosity about the ground below your own feet. How can I honor the home of every word and idea and story? Does a novel incorporate the textures and smells and animacy of the environment from which it erupts? Do I personally know the names and habits of the ecology just outside my door? Ecology brings me home into the present landscape of my local environment. It asks me to participate in the specific world that provides me with soil, air, water, and beauty. 
Eco orients me towards the specifics of my own lived experience and reminds me not to appropriate from other cultures and landscapes. Eco shows me that no character, no story, no song or poem should ever evaporate into abstraction. Does your philosophy have a landscape and community? If someone mentions a bird, ask them what kind of bird. If you write a story about a character that lives in the countryside, make sure you know the name of every tree that shadows their plotline. Honor the texture of your ecosystem. Enter into kinship with your more than human home. I'm interested this sentence where you say eco shows me that no character, no story, no song or poem should ever evaporate into abstraction. Um, Let's talk about that just a little bit. I think if you read the gospels, the synoptic gospels that were written by um, the Roman, pretty much the Roman citizens who assassinated the character they're writing about, (laughs) you, you encounter a lot of words that feel very abstract, you know, kingdom, God, spirit, breath. You know, it's hard to weigh those. It's hard to taste them. It's hard to, to picture them in your head. And so the character Jesus abstracted from his own name, Yeshua, and from the very textured, rough language he would have actually been using, the language he depended on as an oral storyteller. It, you know, I think literacy was 2% in Galilee at that time. It is highly unlikely that the Rabbi Yeshua Jesus was literate. He probably learned his scriptures through Targums, through other people, through storytellers. Um, and that's also probably how he taught his his spiritual wisdom was orally through conversation. Um, and if you look at him actually and look at the ecology of Galilee in Judea and look at his parables, you realize that there's something behind the abstraction behind the black and white words on a page that he wouldn't have even recognized. That there's very specific information about living in a specific landscape. My favorite is that he says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which at the time period was the most pernicious, detested weed of Galilean farmers. Plutarch even writes about it. He's like, oh my gosh, you do not, you know, Plutarch is contemporaneous with, with Jesus and says like, you don't want mustard, mustard seeds or grains. They're going to take over your plot of land and destroy your crops. So he's saying something anarchic anti-neolithic, anti-agricultural even, to agricultural people. He's saying something really ecologically radical that gets abstracted away from it when we forget the landscape that was actually there. So I, I think I think of Jesus as being a really interesting example of what happens when we try and simplify the language, when we, when we deracinate it, uproot it from its soil, from its mycorrhizal connections. And, you know, Galilee was on a rhizomatic continuum with Canaanite vegetal religions that were still there. You know, Judaism was much more folkloric. There were about 15 different strains of it. There were still wild festivals where the divine feminine Asherah was celebrated. And that's the political, cultural, and ecological situation that this rabbi is coming into being inside of. And we forget about that when we translate the Aramaic into Coptic and then write it down on a page where it ossifies and breaks down. Absolutely. That's a beautiful example about the mustard seed, right? And it's one of those things, like, again, like, you know, with the Greek myths too, it's one of those things that scholars and historians, unless they're rooted in the ecology of a place, just completely get skipped over. If you look at Jesus, he's a nature-based storyteller. Mm. That's really, I mean, that's how he's connecting with people. 
well, he's saying we're, we're all living in, in this landscape together. We all depend on it for our food, for our animals, for our livelihood. This is where we're going to have a spiritual experience. He's not actually using <laughs> abstract nouns. He's using nouns that people can pick up. He's using bread. He's saying this bread is my body. And I think that we, we lose that a little bit the more we translate it away from its original landscape. So the thing that I try and do with someone like Jesus is I say, so Jesus's parables don't necessarily map onto where I live. They don't map onto the Hudson Valley, but they teach me about honoring the local. They say, how do I write parables of the Hudson Valley? How do I look at the invasive species, the flowers, the fungi, the agricultural indigenous techniques that have been used for thousands of years? And how do I ask them, well, what is the kingdom here? What would it look like here? So it inspires a new kind of storytelling. The plant-based parables, when you really get into it, a huge amount of Jesus's teaching is plant-based and really has to do with, and, and then I think of him, you know, as a carpenter too, who was literally in contact with plants and with wood all day long, right? And this is something that infuses his parables and like you're saying, isn't abstract, isn't an abstraction. There's a wonderful quote that you have where he says, split a piece of wood, I am there, lift up the stone and you will find me there. And then you say the me he speaks of is not himself, but the kingdom of astonishment, the fragrant pith of the cedar wood entering our nostrils is the kingdom. The awe we feel at the moonlight silvered grub under the stone is the secret gospel. Beyond being just an absolutely beautiful piece of writing, I think that that really evokes something. Can you say more about this, the kingdom of astonishment? Yeah, well, I think that it's important to note that that quote comes from the Gospel of Thomas, which is a Gnostic gospel. It's considered apocryphal, but the truth is that the Gnostics were actually some of the original Christians, and the only reason they're not considered the kind of generally accepted Christianity is because they were mostly murdered by other Christians early on. And it's actually interesting, the Gospel of Thomas overlaps with the Synoptic Gospels quite a bit. So some some of the same parables exist in both, but the Gospel of Thomas is one of the earliest compositions. So it's probably closer to the kind of tricky, riddling koans of Jesus. And that, that tricky, riddling Jesus that exists in the Gospel of Thomas really wants us to be present in the now. That the kingdom is not it's, there's no interim ethics. It's not about making do before the kingdom comes. It's not this made up interim waiting room that uh, Orthodox Christianity becomes later. It's about being extremely present to what's happening to you in the current moment, what animals, what people, what food is available, and realizing that that presence, that astonishment that the world's right here, right here for you is where your spiritual insight is going to come from. Mm. Yeah. And then you go on to say, we live in a moment when we are woefully blind to the kingdom. And so the loss of this kingdom of astonishment, right? You say sensory gating, the neurological process of filtering out redundant stimuli from our sensual experience to create a homogenized reality has been tightened by patriarchy and civilization. We quite literally do not see what is in front of our faces. This is wild. I mean, as some, you know, there's a real popular trend right now in psychedelics. And I want to say, okay, yeah, you can have a heroic singular experience that you don't integrate. Or you can realize that your senses are angels bringing in incredibly massive amounts of psychedelic information all the time. That in order to have a homogenized, useful, manageable experience of reality culture teaches you how to block out most of the stimuli. 
But if you just open up those gates a little bit and learn how to play with them, you can have a much more heightened experience. I mean, it goes back to this issue of embodiment, which is if you open up those gates all the way, you're schizophrenic, you know, you're having, you're experiencing way too much to handle. So it's about, I think actually there, there is a, there's a craft, there's an art that Yeshua, Rabbi Yeshua is, is inviting us into, which is how do you begin to play with those doors so that you can let in the magic and then shut it so that you could integrate, let it in, shut it. It's all about oscillating. And you talked about this in your episode on breath and about somatics. I really loved that. that it's all about opening, closing. Yeah. And there's actually a line of Jesus, and I'm forgetting what gospel it's from, but there's a line of Jesus that says, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no, right? And that reminds me of what you're saying exactly, which is that exact sense of know what to be open to and know what to be closed to, know what to be open to and know what to be closed to. Mytho. The story unfolds. We live within a story. Mythic narrative is the inevitable substrate of human existence. A myth is not just a myth. It's something to build a life around, a community around, a world around. And whether we know we do it or not, we build our lives, our communities, and our worlds around myths every day. Finally, mytho derived from the Greek word for story, saying, or narrative, reminds me that we live inside stories. In order to live better, we must tell better. We must dream up different plots. We must root old plots back in healing nourishment of their original ecological contexts. How can I honor older narratives by updating them? How can I decenter human narratives in favor of landscape stories, weather stories, insect stories? How have my stories become rigid? Telling new stories can mean honoring, composting, and fertilizing older narrative traditions. Nothing gets thrown out. Everything gets thrown into the compost heap to decompose, melt, connect, fruit, and flow. The realm of myths also reminds me to honor the dream world the world of intuition and non-traditional modes of knowledge. Mytho reminds me that stories can trap us if we let them ossify. But if we keep them oral, keep them interrogative and participatory, keep them changing to suit our changing needs, our changing relationships and ecologies, they can root us back into our world. They can teach us that the most important part about storytelling is asking for the story. Go to the oak tree and ask for its story. Go to the river and ask for its story. Go to the goldenrod and ask without saying anything. Ask with your nose, your belly, your eyes. The answer won't always be words, won't always be sound. Sometimes it will be a feeling in your body. Sometimes it will be a smell. Stories don't belong to human beings, but human beings belong to stories. Let's enter back into the complex, tangled work of letting go of authorship and letting ourselves be told. Where you say that we live inside stories, and then at the end you say stories don't belong to human beings, but human beings belong to stories. Can you say a little bit more about that, how you see that? Yeah, sure. I mean, think about, it, think about an ant colony. 
there are memories that belong to an ant colony that not a single ant there actually lived to experience. <laughs> that when you when you think of communities, they're living inside stories that they didn't actually initiate or tell. Um, and you know, we're living inside American quote unquote democracy, and we didn't initiate that story, but we're living it out as problematically as it has become. Religions are like that too. We're living inside stories that we have all mutually agreed will direct our moral, our ecological, our social behavior. We're also living inside stories that we don't understand. I mean, that's something that I always wanted to talk about is that there are waves of vegetation and stone and climate that are moving at scales that are so much bigger than us. You know, I think of Timothy Morton's idea of hyper objects, you know, that capitalism is a story that's moving and working in such a way that it, we can't see it. We can't understand it. And I think it's important for us to understand that stories are happening and we're involved in them, but we're not necessarily the main character and we're also not necessarily the author. And not being the main character is one of those things that can feel daunting at first. And then we realize that it's actually kind of a great relief to not be the main character. <laughs> it's interesting because I think that we're good at spotting other people's stories. Yeah. Like we're good at, we're good at spotting religious narratives. Yeah. Um, we're good at spotting, you know, the outdated stories of the past and this type of thing. But I think maybe we're not as good. I think there's kind of, you know, maybe the, the water that neoliberalism swims in causes people to think that somehow like progress and science kind of live outside of that story. And that like mo that modern science is, is an antidote to all this like outdated storytelling. Right. And what I see is that human beings absolutely essentially must structure their lives around stories and within stories. And that even science is selling a particular story. Right. And I don't know. How do you see it? How do you see this? Oh, this is something I think about a lot, especially as science as being a kind of interrogative, always curious, always adapting mode of questioning. And then scientism as being this reductionist idea that there are essential truths that we've already arrived at. Um, and that there are just a couple more things we need to prove. <laughs> so I always want to make the distinction between those two. So I think science has gotten a bad name. You know, science for me as it is understood culturally, is really reminds me of like the church right before Protestantism, where it was like, no one actually gets access to this information. The priests or the hierophants who get to translate this, you can't read the Latin, you can't read the book. We get to translate it for you and tell you what's in there. You know, people can't access this scientific jargon. They can't even pay for the scientific articles. They block by paywalls. And yet people are just blanket supposed to believe everything they're they're receiving. Um, and that's really problematic because storytelling is participatory. Knowledge is participatory. It's not just something you're supposed to receive. You're supposed to understand it, ask it questions, change it, adapt it. Yeah, I think a great example for me is the idea that the sperm fertilizes the egg. So that's a story, but people think that's a fact. And actually they've proven it's wrong. So I think a lot of people don't understand that every scientific fact is a story. And it's a story that's informed culturally. Isabel Stengers writes about this a lot, about how even like the neutrino is an idea. It's not something we've ever seen or measured, you know, that these facts are really just these story objects that are created in labs and are incredibly hard to isolate in the actual ecological context that they're supposed to exist in. Yeah, including dark matter, which is supposed <laughs> to comprise 85% of the universe. 
and it's a and it's a story it's an idea and it's a story that shifts depending on where you take the perspective right people sometimes think that i'm like science bashing and stuff like that on the podcast and and i'm not i'm a big fan of the scientific methodology and i think it's also important that we recognize that it's a methodology and that methodology is culturally informed and does happen at specific moments in time and space and in our culture is very linked with larger stories of progress that we've been telling ourselves for, you know, about the past 3000 years or so. And so within that doesn't remain necessarily neutral, but is a series of overlapping stories. And the good scientists know when to move on from one story to the next, right? I mean, that's the thing that, that science is, is it really finds itself in a super problematic moment, which is each discipline of science wants to position itself at the top of the hierarchy, you know, physics, quantum physics, biology, microbiology. And instead of saying that we're all, that there are all of these different overlapping interdisciplinary approaches with no one approach having that general unifying theory. Yeah. And, you know, physics has reigned supreme, but that's just because it, it, we feel like it's the most direct, not because it necessarily is. Right. And I think, its supreme reign is getting challenged a little bit by the fact that the smaller and smaller it cuts, the more it keeps finding variations on a musical theme, you could say, that appears to just go on into infinity without, you know, like you said, that, oh, if we just figured out that one thing, well, that one thing happens to be infinite. (laughs) And figuring out that one thing is is something that has to happen ultimately experientially. Yeah, and I I think that we've also blocked science off from certain modes of thinking that could make it fresher and more interesting. Like, you know, we should bring musicians into science. We should bring artists into science. We should let these modalities flow both ways and inform each other. And it's important to know that most of the biggest thinkers in science were not technically scientists or trained scientists. They were enthusiasts. They were amateurs. They were naturalists. They were wealthy um, hobbyists. So anyone can do science. Science is a kind of storytelling. Yeah, and it reminds me, you quote Robert Bringhurst, who I absolutely love. And uh, and you say that, that he talks about a myth being a type of science, right? Yeah, that uses quantities. Well, um, it, it uses quantities and then myth uses persons. Like elementals become persons in myth and elementals become quantities in science. But they're basically both trying to explain how the universe works. Exactly. And that, you know, that's so interesting. And it, in the last episode I did on the shapes of stories, it was really about that, how stories are, are about forces that science would describe centrifugally and centripetally and in terms of rising and falling and this type of thing. And the myth personifies that. And how sometimes, and I think it's all about a good storyteller knows that you can't tell the story the same way to every group of people you meet, that you have to adapt it to different situations, different times of day, different people. And I think science should be the same way. Science should know that it, you know, that sometimes it should be more mythological. Sometimes it should be more factual, that it should be able to flow through different vocabulary. And the vocabulary, you know, it's really interesting when you start breaking down the vocabulary, electron, like an electron means an amber light, right? An amber light. There's deep poetry in in the sciences, and it's all a way of describing something that isn't tangible to us, that needs a matrix of vocabulary in order to be translated, right? And that 
that is a story. Like, yeah, and what if we wrote? What if we wrote our science factually, but with an understanding that beauty and storytelling are deeply human attributes of understanding and meaning making? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and probably like the most rational things that human beings can do, right? I mean, and this is something that I'm really interested in exploring on the podcast. But you know, ritual is rational. Like ritual. Yeah serves a very distinct human purpose. Beauty is rational. And, you know, this is where I think Apollo gets a really bad modern rap. Apollo was associated with harmonics and it was shamans in ecstatic trance who were the, you know, seers of Apollo. And he was very much that bridge between the mystical and the harmonic and how that translates into the tangible and the musical scales and this type of thing. And now he gets just kind of like, oh, he's, you know, all things rational and that Apollonian Dionysian split that's really a function of the Western way of looking at it, not at how they actually were in context. And that's, that's the whole problem is that we want to we create all of these oppositional dualisms. And actually, for me, I think it's a way, you know, you divide men from each other, you like corrupt their friendships, <laughs> you know, you take Apollo and Dionysus, and you're like, you can't be friends. <laughs> you know, instead of saying, like, what if they get to work together? What if you need form, you need ritual, you need a narrative sometimes, and then you need to let the narrative melt. Like, so you need to be able to flow through both modalities. Absolutely. And that, you know, and that happened later, you know, it happened much, much later. And this is the thing, I mean, even with like Plutarch, I mean, this is the thing about the Greek, Greek mythic culture, you know, you have the commentators at the time who are commenting on mostly rural traditions from the cities. So you already get that veil between what was actually going on. And then, then you add like, you know, Plutarch was, and even Ovid, I mean, they were hundreds of years after these myths were actually like alive within, within their, you know, cultic local ecosystems. And so even our understanding of how they played out, you know, in places where there wasn't a dichotomy, right? There wasn't a split between, like you're saying, the the two gods that can't get along. And a lot of it's the fault of the Romans. I mean... Well, it's actually... I mean, the thing that I've been thinking about, it's like not like winter and summer are not enemies. They're just different parts of the year. Um, right. You know, the new moon and the full moon are not opposed. They're just different parts of the same moon. I think the, the one thing I'd say is like, Lunar knowledge encompasses solar knowledge, but solar knowledge doesn't let there be lunar knowledge. Mm. You know, um, and Joseph Campbell writes about that solarization. For me, the really interesting thing is what happens when the Greeks come down and invade the Mediterranean basin, and they co-opt these much, much older Bronze Age um, pre-Olympic myths and make them into the Olympic pantheon. Yeah. But that's that moment where, you know, what is the Demeter myth? We're not really sure. I mean, a lot of these things are these like weird hand wavings above like the older suppressed pre-Greek myths. So mm. I think Apollo and Dionysus, as far as my research has gone, are like older than the, the Olympic pantheon. Absolutely. Yeah. Apollo was contacted. You know, I think I think that what you're saying about the solarization happens a little bit later, right? Yeah. And and Apollo originally was contacted in states of musical trance and musical ecstasy in very similar ways than than Dionysus was, you know, which is, I mean, really the heart of all divinities and all gods has been, you know, that they are contacted in regular ritualized musical ecstatic ceremony. And, you know, the kind of, I think, abstract personality traits of the gods 
that become much more the playing field of written myth, right? Like Apollo represents solar values and Dionysus represent, you know, that, that can only come with abstraction because the fact is like, if you were in an Apollo cult in Asia minor, a couple thousand years before any of this stuff was written down, Apollo encompassed all the qualities of ecstasy because he was your local cult God, right? He wasn't the one who does this. And this is, I I think, yeah, yeah, the ecosystem. Exactly. Point I'm really trying to make in my writing is that Apollo and Dionysus, when when they're inside their ecosystems, are connected under the ground. They're sharing a root system. They're all part of the same kind of forest. So yeah, in one in one place he's called Apollo. In another place he's called Dionysus. He's gonna appear if he's gonna fruit up differently in different places naturally. Hmm. The oracles at Delphi, the priestesses at Delphi, they were Apollo priestesses. You know his his rites were officiated by women, like. It's a later conflation to say like Apollo, sun god, patriarchal, and that conflation happened within the culture itself, right? Within an especially Roman culture, but way back when in the wilds, you know, this wasn't the case. And this is, this is just where I think there's so much more texture going on. How many different versions of these gods too? Yeah. It's like what you said, every village had their own version. Yeah. And their own songs and the festivals and. A joke I always say to try and explain myth to people is I say, like, 3,000 years from now, if we're still around, Mother Teresa, Princess Diana, and Marilyn Monroe are all all one character. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's, you know, that that all of these personalities become this mythic character that get poured into this container. Yeah, and that, I think, also becomes more and more possible through the written word and through abstraction, right? Because... You know, originally, I think that when a myth lost its body or when a god lost a body, they became obsolete. If the culture, if the culture was like a small hunter-gatherer culture, then the god was measured by its body. How does this translate into the actual somatics of the community, right? Does this help us get through the winter? Does this help us actually survive? Yeah. In an era when we've detached our gods from the cycle of nature, when we've removed their bodies, what do the old vegetal gods have to offer us? Sophie's first book of essays, The Flowering Wand, Lunar Kings, Lichenized Lovers, Transspecies Magicians, and Rhizomatic Harpists Heal the Masculine, will be coming out with Inner Traditions in 2022. In it, she contrasts the linear with the vegetal, the sword with the wand. Quote, Imagine that the great god Dionysus stands before you and rests his wand, his thyrsus, on your shoulder. The thyrsus, wound with ivy, may have been a woody stalk of fennel, unearthed from the ground, still dangling roots and a fine white threading of hyphae, dew slick perfumed with dirt. It erupts with leaves, fruit, and flowers. When Dionysus touches you with it, he will catalyze you into mystical ecstasy, and perhaps transform you into an animal or a plant. He's initiating you not into a linear patriarchal narrative of knighthood, but into the gestalt consciousness of his chaotic, vegetal, polytemporal belief sphere. Do we want to hand the masculine a sword or a flowering wand? The sword slices, divides, subdues. Its tip drags imaginary borders across ecosystems. The sword does not embrace, it does not connect, it does not ask questions. It is not an instrument of intimacy. It either attacks or defends, affirming that every interaction is conflict, 
Every story is about domination and tragedy. The sword, perfected by the Romans for the specific task of maiming and executing prisoners, quite literally cuts the mind off from the body. It proposes that we can think without our somatic intuition and without our rooted existence in ecosystems. The sword encapsulates the material reductionist idea that we can cut something up into discrete parts and understand it as a whole, that we must kill the animal to study the animal, that if we dissect enough brains, we might find the secrets of consciousness. The wand, on the other hand, creates connections. Long before the sword-wielding heroes of legend readily cut down forests, slaughtered the old deities, and vanquished their enemies, there were playful gods, animal-headed kings, mischievous lovers, and vegetal magicians. There were trickster harpists and riddling bards. You, you talk about the thyrsus of Dionysus, the fennel stalk, um, possibly, right? Wound with ivy. And then this um, beautiful image that you get into about the sword versus the wand. And let's talk about that a little bit. For me as a somatic instructor, it's impossible. The wand and the spinal column are very linked, right? And the wand and the world tree and the spinal column. And even the, the water, like Yggdrasil, the Norse tree, which showers do, right? In this relationship of the wand and the water. And so it's like the suggestion that wands are an alignment or an extension, right? They're like a relationship rather than the sword, which isn't. You know, I love that idea of them as the spine. I've never thought of that before. But yeah, I always think of the magician and the magician card, you know, drawing those, that connection, like the spores, looping us into the sky and the ground. I think with men, there's this idea, like, I don't have anything against swords. I mean, I played with swords when I was a little kid. Like, I love swords. Um, Like, you know, drama with swords in it was like what I gravitated towards. (laughs) I do think that symbolically... If you only ever, if you only ever mythically, narratively hand a man a sword, there's only so much he can do with that narratively. He can cut, he can divide, he can create conflict, he can defend. He's not creating connection. He's not fermenting. He's not standing back. He's not asking questions. I think the wand for me is this connection between the non-human, the more than human world, the vegetative world. You know, the wand is actually sprouting from the ground. It's that fruiting body of the mushroom. It's the vine. It's the tree. It's the fennel stalk. So it's connecting the masculine in with this, with its birthright, which is this vegetal, anarchic, fungal information. Um, And this ecstatic experience of of participation, of not being alone. Yeah. And, you know, Dionysus as a god who spanned all over Asia Minor, all the way into India, across thousands of years, who was a male god who doesn't seem as associated with like the sword and the conquering hero and this type of thing. Not, I mean, I mean, the thing about Dionysus is I always think of Dionysus as being the anarchic wisdom, like, so not neutral, not totally easy of invasive species and of fermentation. You know, he shows up and the ivy digests the ship. It digests the, the city that, you know, the fermented food, the yeasts, the fungal intelligence drives people mad into ecstasy. So he's the kind of, he's the wisdom of emergent systems. You know, the master's tools will, will never dismantle the master's house. So when you have 
ossified patriarchal systems, when you have cities, when you have hierarchy, Dionysus is the medicine you want because it's unpredictable. It's not, it doesn't fit into the paradigm that people expect. And what you're saying is so essential right now. And and I think that it's I think that it's challenging on all sides of the social spectrum because it's so easy to see social discourse, you know, as within the realm of the sword, one could say, like basically jabbing and cutting and, you know, and that being valued and honored and that being valued and honored even by people who might proclaim a particular ideology that, you know, like might align with social justice work, but yet the communication models don't tend to be this like mycelial hierarchical penetrative strange you know chaotic events i've been thinking a lot about locust swarms mm. and about you know how grasshoppers go through this morphological change where they actually become locusts they get more muscular they get more social it's called gregarity yeah it's very oh my gosh it's like actually almost unprecedented in biology like it's one of these wild things and this the swarming systems they create aren't easily mapped mathematically or with computer programs like other swarms, like murmurations or starlings, that they're always on the edge of disorder. And in fact, as they start to fall out of synchrony, they generate more disorder. They start to act more chaotically. And it's this agitation of their bodies in this totally unpredictable way that brings them back into the swarm. <laughs> so it's, it's the opposite of how we understand energy, which is the chaos actually breeds the synchrony. And I've been thinking about how it's these non-hierarchical, gregarious, wild, kind of puckish Dionysus interactions we need to generate. It's the transversal gene transfer of symbiogenesis. It's not this fictional neo-Darwinian plunge forward along the arrow of time. It's saying we're going to collaborate across genes, across species. And I'm always interested into how this like translates into practice for yeah. the individual being, right? I mean, Dionysus... The Dionysus was the liberator because he took people across into the state where they could actually feel this that you're talking about, right? Which has to do with embodiment, but it has to do with feeling the body as part of a larger network. You know, the communal dance and the, the frenzy of trance exists to take the practitioner into this place where, you know, they actually experientially feel it. And that's something that I feel, this is where I think that what you're saying about the gods needing, you know, to have bodies or needing to be embodied, I think it's so important now because I feel like, you know, I feel like more and more we're in a world of abstracted concepts that, that don't translate into local ecology. And I guess, I guess it's like a very broad overarching question of how do you, you know, how do you give the gods back their bodies? Well, it's a great question, and I don't necessarily have a single answer for it. I would hope not. <laughs> all of us have our different ways of infusing animacy and sacredness into our world, or waking up to it. And I think that some of us are going to be really great at facilitating dance and trance and helping people integrate plant magic and medicine. And then there are going to be podcasters and oral storytellers. And then they're going to be scientists and they're people who actually like make food and bring people into relationship with local food. You know, they're people who are farmers who are going to invite people into their farms and saying like, this is the dirt where your food was grown. Let's eat it together and get drunk. You know, 
that can be, sometimes I, th- I think that we've gotten really, really shuddered about what activism, what, what right relationship with land looks like. I think that it looks different every day and it looks different for different people. For me personally, it has to do with storytelling and writing and with trying to translate these experiences and mulch and compost these older stories that I care about. If I have one answer that feels most potent, it's follow what you love and realize that what you love is a God. Like, you know, realize that the thing that you love in your environment and your ecosystem is perhaps the most sacred thing in your life. For me, you know, a lot of people are like, so mycelium are like the answer to everything. And I'm like, no, for me, they are the thing that feels most sacred. And they are, they are the translation tool for me into, they stitch me into relationship with my world, but it's going to be different for someone else necessarily. And for you, do you find writing to be an ecstatic practice? Yeah. Um, sometimes agonizing. Um, I was joking that in the past year, I, I've been fully inoculated with some kind of fungi and just been writing. And it's been like one of those opiocordyceps unilateralis fungi that um, take over the ant and like make it like climb up to this stalk of, of grass and like bite into it. And then they sporulate out of their heads. <laughs> like so the writing process definitely feels like you're in flow. Like you feel like you're in touch with something, but not necessarily like totally fun. Yeah. You quoted the quote that I used in this other essay about that Andreas Weber talks about, which is, you know, I want to live my life towards the general enlivenment, towards the aliveness of the ecosystem generally, knowing that it won't actually necessarily be good for me as a sterile individual. And so it involves some pain and it involves surrender and giving away. It's not a totally individual, pleasurable experience. Right. And I think that, and this is, I think, a good place to kind of wrap it into a circle. Um, But I think this is really interesting in terms of like, you could say like the modern self-help world and, you know, your piece of writing that you did about the ruin where, you know, you basically say that the point is to become a ruin, right? And I think this is so important because, I mean, it's in every mythology, it's in every, really in, in every story in one way or another, like the, what we think of normally in our kind of normal waking consciousness as the individual does have to become a ruin in a way, right? I mean, making a family is about making yourself into a home for other beings to kind of compost and grow, you know? we are we have more bacterial cells in our body than we do human cells i mean we're we're never we're always the compost the soil that's growing something else you know we're always i think one thing that i always think about is i don't know if i'm telling my story or if i'm telling the bacteria in my body's story (laughs) am i my microbiome story i don't know but i know that i have to make myself into good dirt Make myself into good dirt. Become, as she says, a ruin. Here's how she describes this experience of becoming a ruin as she walked amidst the ruins of an old hotel on Overlook Mountain. Quote, The mountain made sure it burned down, not once, but three times. The hotel was never supposed to be enclosed and habitable. It was always destined for porousness for open communication with the ecosystem. It's now a perfect landscape for snakes and trees and ivy and the occasional intrepid wild turkey. 
It's a skeleton that has been embraced and enfleshed by a green body, the vegetal Manitou presence of Overlook Mountain itself. Sitting here inside this open body, I accept my open body, my porousness, the necessity of the fires that opened all my windows and let the greenery inside. The point is not to build ourselves into isolation, but to accept that the ruin is the point. Let seeds fly inside and root into the floors of my body. Let the birch trees push off the roof of my bounded stories about selfhood. Let me become a window, a frame for a green world. Many thanks to Sophie for that wonderful discussion. You can find her posts on Facebook and her book will be upcoming in 2022 from Inner Traditions. And thanks also to Max Brumberg for the wonderful Aulos music. You can find out more about his handcrafted instruments at maxbrumbergflutes.eu. Many thanks as always to our patrons and listeners. And until next time, may our lives be driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. Some of the earliest examples of wands are the apotropaic hippopotamus. Okay. <laughs> okay, I've got Apotropaic hippopotamus, 10 times fast. I'm not ever expecting that you're going to have to read them. Um, exactly. <laughs> I guess you don't. I guess you're really good at that. Well, I'm not. So I'm gonna I don't know how good I'd be at saying apotropaic hippopotamus. Uh, you did it, okay. Yeah, well.